Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, I want you to think about a time in your life when you have felt most exposed. So maybe something that you once kept secret came to light. Maybe you were put on the spot in some sort of really uncomfortable way uh, in the classroom or in a meeting of some kind. Maybe you had to stand up and speak publicly. I just want you to think for a second about a time in your life when you felt most exposed. And specifically, I want you to think about the emotions that accompanied that experience. Now, I immediately think about a reoccurring dream that I had as a teenager. Maybe you can relate to this dream. It's common. A lot of people have it. But on a semi-regular basis, I dreamed that I was standing naked in my high school hallway. Anyone else have that dream? Are you kidding? No one has had that except me? If you freaking Google that, I know I'm not the only one. A lot of people have had that dream. I have never felt more alone. Not one person. I, I choose to believe people streaming at home, they've all had it. Okay, their hands are all up. Mine was a little unique in that I was not complete. I was like Donald Duck naked, so like t-shirt, no pants was what I was working with in my dream. So it was extra, extra horrible. But in short, it was just because you've never had it. Let me tell you, it's a horrible, horrible dream. And even though it wasn't real, I still can tangibly remember the emotions that accompanied it. I felt embarrassed and ashamed, obviously. I was afraid and confused. No one plans to go to school naked, so when you wake up there, it's weird. So I was confused, and, and I just remember feeling totally exposed and that that was horrifying. And so I want you, clearly that's not been your experience, but think about a time when you have felt most exposed and then the emotions that came with it. Because those uncomfortable emotions that accompany the experience are what so many of us work so meticulously to avoid. And the problem is, many of the means that we employ to avoid ever feeling exposed are the same means that are keeping us from experiencing intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. And so as we've talked about over the past two weeks, until we choose the courage and the strength to come out of hiding, we will never experience the connection and the intimacy for which we long and for which we were created to experience. Now, over the past few weeks, we've talked about the effects of shame in our lives, namely that it drives us to hide. And then we've looked at God's response to us in our shame, that he patiently pursues us. And so today, I want to talk about what it looks like to take the first steps to come out of hiding by cultivating the spiritual practice of vulnerability. And so I want to call this message, Stepping into the Open. Stepping in to the open. If you have your Bibles uh, or an app that you like to read on, do me a favor and turn to Genesis chapter 32. Uh, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. The scripture is going to be up on the screen behind me. But everyone get to Genesis chapter 32. We're specifically going to look at verses 24 to 32. 
but I want to fill in some context uh, in, for this chapter. Now, Genesis 32 is uh, a story involving a man named Jacob. And if you are not familiar with Jacob's background, in short, Jacob was a mess. And I think it's important that we acknowledge what a mess Jacob was. We have to be so careful not to ever whitewash the men and women who make up the stories contained in the pages of scriptures, because when we do that, we make them almost superhuman and thus completely unlike you and I. And the reason that the Bible tells such raw stories about the men and women inside of it is so that we will be able to read them and realize, wow, these people are just like you and I. These were deeply flawed people used by a perfect God. And so in short, they are just like you and I. And Jacob is no exception. He was one of the fathers of the nation of Israel, and Jacob was deeply flawed. He was fearful, he was insecure, he was manipulative, and he was deceptive. And he had this older twin brother named Esau, and when their father Isaac was dying, Jacob deceived Esau and stole his older brother's birthright. And in this culture, birthright was everything. It meant authority, it meant property, it meant money, and it meant the legacy of the family name. And so when Jacob steals this precious gift that rightfully belonged to his brother, Esau is understandably irate. And in Genesis 27, verse 41, Esau vows that he will kill Jacob because of what he has done. And so Jacob runs off to his uncle Laban's where he continues his pattern of cheating and manipulating for 21 years. And so Genesis 32 is this story of Jacob's epic return to finally face his brother Esau after, again, 21 years. But even more than a story about Jacob's return, it's an example of God's determination to draw his people out of shame-driven hiding and into the open. And so for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of Genesis 32, but I do want to tell you what happens in the rest of this chapter before we get to just these few verses that we're going to study. If there is one emotion that dominates Jacob throughout Genesis chapter 32, that emotion would be fear. And he feels fear for very understandable reasons. Remember, the the last time that Jacob had interacted with his brother Esau, Esau had vowed to kill him. And grudges like this often don't fade with time. And so Jacob has good reason to believe that Esau still hates him and has, has, has even had these 21 years for this resentment and rage to calcify inside of his heart. And so for all Jacob knows, as he's headed back, he's marching toward at best relational rejection by his brother and at worst his own death. And it doesn't take very long for circumstances to reinforce this fear that he's feeling. Because Jacob, still trying to manipulate and control this situation, he sends messengers on ahead of his family to Esau. He sends them ahead, and he says, you guys, I need you to go. I need you to tell my brother where I've been. I want you to tell him how much success that I've had, and I want you to seek his favor on my behalf. And so these messengers go and do that, and as they come back, they bring a message with them. They say, hey, we found Esau. We spoke with him. He's on his way. And, you know, minor detail, he's bringing 400 men with him. And so 
When we get to verse 7, it says Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, which makes sense because 400 men also just happens to be the average size of a militia in this culture. So Jacob was like, that's this really not the response I was hoping for, but this is where he is. And so as we come to verse 24, I want you to just imagine, imagine Jacob's emotional state. It is the night before this massively important reunion that is 21 years in the making. Uh, It's not going great so far from Jacob's vantage point because Esau's coming furiously with 400 men. And so every aspect of his future hangs in the balance. So he is afraid, he is stressed, and he is feeling deeply insecure. That's his state the night before he's going to meet Esau. And so imagine the way that you have felt the night before some important event in your life that the stakes were high in. One that comes to mind for me uh, is the night before Tammy and I were assessed for church planting. We went out to Seattle in 2008. Um, I'd only been a worship pastor up to that point. I'd never been a lead pastor before. I was only 27 years old. Um, I hadn't gone to seminary. I had very limited preaching experience, and we were not being sent by another church. We hadn't gone through like a training program with a residency that, uh, that so many people get to go through. And so we just had us and a few friends and this very simple vision to start a healthy church. And so because of that, I wanted other people who had some experience to be able to speak into our fitness for the task, because I don't know if you know this, but church planting has a 70% failure rate. So 70% of churches that get started fail inside of the first two years. So it's it's a very big step to take, and we wanted someone else to speak into it. And so Tammy and I flew out to Seattle with Ava, who was like six months old at the time, and we were gonna meet with these people with whom we had no relationship, knowing that if they said we were not ready, that we were going to trust them, and this venture was going to be over before it truly even started. And so to say that we were stressed the night before is an understatement. In fact, Tammy kept telling me for the months leading up to this, every time I would bring up the assessment, she would just go, oh yeah, I'm not doing that. Over for months, that's the message. Yeah, oh yeah, have fun, I'm not doing that. In fact, the the morning of the assessment, I distinctly remember we walked out of our hotel room, we're going to the car, and she goes, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. So needless to say, our assessment went great, and Tammy was a baller. She made all four of our assessors cry. It was an amazing thing to behold. Uh, But my point is, anxiety, fear, and stress are natural emotional reactions in an impending high-stake event in one's life. And this is exactly where Jacob is. And as we come to verse 24 now, Jacob's emotional state is compounded by this unexpected and unbelievable encounter that he has. So look with me at Genesis 32, beginning in verse 24. It says, Jacob was left alone. So he's in a moment of solitude the night before. His family has gone on ahead. He is withdrawn, and he is by himself. Jacob was left alone. And listen to this. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Now, there is so much exceptional about what just happened in those two verses. First, there is absolutely no mention of how this wrestling match started. That's my favorite. It's just like, 
How often does that happen? We're just hanging out at night alone and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm wrestling now. (laughs) And that's what happened with Jacob. So we're sort of left with the, the implication that Jacob was ambushed by this mysterious assailant. Second, this is easy for us to miss, miss, miss in the text, but at this point in Jacob's life, he's 96 years old. And he wrestled all night long. I need like a, I'm 40, I need like a full yoga class every morning for my body to function throughout the day. Jacob's 96 years old, and he wrestles through the night. And third, when his opponent finally realizes that Jacob was not going to relent, he strikes him so hard in his hip socket that his hip is dislocated. Your hip is like one of the strongest muscles in your body. You know how hard you have to get hit in your hip for it to just come apart? So everything about this is exceptional, but most significant is that somewhere throughout the night, Jacob realized this was more than a mere man that he was wrestling with. Look with me at 26. Then the man said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said. Yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why, still today, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. So, at some point in the night, throughout this wrestling match, Jacob realizes he is having an encounter with the living God. So what we have here in Genesis chapter through, uh, Genesis 32 is an example of what scholars call a theophany. A theophany is an Old Testament instance of God the Son appearing in the flesh in anticipation of his coming incarnation. incarnation. And so what's happening in Genesis 32 is that Jacob has been wrestling with Jesus himself. He experienced the divine, and understandably, he desperately demands a blessing. And the means through which this blessing flows is significant. Because notice again in verse 27, Jesus' response to Jacob's demand for a blessing was a question. He says to him, what is your name? And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, I don't know about you, but that question strikes me as an echo of God's opening question to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, as Jacob and, and or as uh, Adam and Eve are hiding in the midst of their shame, God calls out to them, where are you? God is inquiring of their inner condition, not their literal location. And similarly, Jesus isn't asking Jacob's name so that he knows how to address him or how to refer to him. To be asked your name in this culture and in this manner was to be invited into an act of self-disclosure where you confess your deepest identity. He's asking Jacob to acknowledge the shame of who he has been so that he can rename him with the promise of who he will be. And so when Jacob is asked, what is your name? 
He is being invited into the spiritual practice of vulnerability. And the blessing that Jacob desired demanded facing the very shame that he had spent his life carrying. Now, the word vulnerability carries with it some description of the practice itself. It's derived from a Latin word that means to wound. The condition or the state of being vulnerable means to be susceptible to physical or emotional attack or harm, which is why we work so hard to avoid vulnerability at all costs. The problem is, like we saw in the example of Adam and Eve, our attempts at avoiding vulnerability with God and with one another has also the side effect of severing us from the very intimacy that we long to experience. I've struggled to find a simple definition of vulnerability that is descriptive of the practice itself, and so I wrote one this week. And so here's my working definition of what I would argue is one of the most necessary but most neglected spiritual disciplines, and I deeply believe it's a spiritual discipline. In the same way that prayer and Bible reading is, it is a spiritual discipline. And so here's what vulnerability is. If you want to write this down, you can. Vulnerability is the decision to disclose my true thoughts, emotions, and intentions despite fear of rejection. Vulnerability is the decision to disclose my true thoughts, emotions, and intentions despite fear of rejection. So vulnerability then means stepping into the open and being truly known. And here's why there's no intimacy apart from vulnerability. Remember, at its root, shame is the fear that if we were truly known and if we were truly seen for who we are, we would be rejected. So shame says, man, I'm so bad that if anyone truly saw me, truly knew me, they would disengage from me, they would disconnect from me, and they would reject me. So we then place this deeply felt conviction on our relationships with one another, and most destructively, we, we, we place this deeply felt conviction on our relationship with God. And in order to avoid this disconnection that we so deeply fear, we hide. We hide behind false selves that we believe will be more palatable and more acceptable than our true selves. And while this hiding might make us feel safe, it also isolates us. And so vulnerability demands the courage to step into the open and to disclose our true thoughts, emotions, and intentions in the face of the fear of rejection. And I, I don't want to brush past that last part because there is a very uncomfortable reality in all of this talk about vulnerability. See, fear is the field on which vulnerability fights. Fear is the context in which vulnerability is practiced. And I say that because sometimes we have this tendency, I know I have, we've had this tendency to confuse transparency and vulnerability. And they're related, but they're not the same. You can't have vulnerability without transparency, but you can be transparent without being vulnerable. And so let me just explain that because I've had a lot of confusion about this in my own life. A year and a half ago now, just about a year and a half ago, I started prepping for a teaching series that I had planned to do on the topic of emotional health, fully believing I was one of the most emotionally healthy people that I knew. 
Mainly because, again, I had a tendency to confuse uh, uh, mental resilience with emotional health. I thought they were the same thing. And so part of my, as part of my preparation, I was reading this book by a pastor named Pete, Pete Scazzaro uh, by the, that was called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And in that book, there's this self-assessment where you answer all these questions honestly, and then at the end you get a report, and it, it helps you assess your level of emotional health. And so I took this assessment thinking, I'm literally about to get like the best score that has ever been scored on this assessment. And so I answered every single question very, very honestly, and guess what happened? I scored painfully low in one particular area, and it was in the area of vulnerability. And I got to tell you, in response, it was like super disorienting. When you go into it thinking, I'm about to crush this, and then it crushes you, you're just kind of like, what? what just happened? Okay, it's like being attacked by a stranger in the night and wrestling all night when you weren't planning on that. And so I, got, I, think, I, I think I experienced all five stages of grief in response to this assessment. It started with denial. You know, I was just like, I'm super open about my failures and my flaws, so there's no way I'm not vulnerable then came anger. I was like, this assessment is stupid, and I hate it. And then, then there was the bargaining, where I was like, maybe if I take it again, and I answer the questions differently, I will get a more accurate score. Then came depression, where I was just like, apparently I'm a total fraud. I thought I, thought I was self-aware. Apparently I'm not. And then came acceptance, and I've been in therapy ever since. <laughs> And so in all, in all seriousness, here's why I was so confused. Literally, for years, I've been praised for being vulnerable because I work hard, especially as a preacher, to not be the hero of my own illustration. Have you ever experienced, like that is, my, that is one of my great pet peeves, is preachers that every single illustration they use, they're basically like, let me uh, show you why I am the perfect example of everything that I'm teaching on. I, I don't have the ability to do 95% of what I teach on, and I try to be pretty open about that. I try to be open about failures and flaws in my life, and I try to apologize when I'm wrong. And so people have listened to me do that over the years, and, and they've thought, wow, he's so vulnerable. But I've learned that the real reason that people thought I was vulnerable was because for them to do what I so often do would demand vulnerability from them, even though it doesn't really demand it from me. Most people would rather die than speak publicly, period, right? Like studies actually show that. People's number one fear when surveyed is public speaking. Number two is death. So most people, to even stand in front of people and to talk is an amazing act of vulnerability. So in addition to that, for people to hear me do something that for them would make them feel so vulnerable and to be open about these things, people just assumed like, what an amazing demonstration of vulnerability. But here's the thing, for whatever reason, none of that makes me feel vulnerable. It never has. Just because I was transparent did not mean that I was practicing vulnerability. But this question that is put to Jacob wasn't just about transparency, it demanded that he be vulnerable. Because when Jesus asked Jacob his name, he could have recoiled in shame. Jesus knew his name. It's Jesus. He knows everything. He knew Jacob's whole past. He knew everything, every shameful thing that he'd ever done that started when he was young. He knew all of that. But he was putting 
Jacob into a position where he was being invited to come out of hiding. And he said, what is your name? And Jacob could have recoiled in shame. He could have thought, man, if I disclose who I am, if I disclose where I've been, if I disclose what I've done, he will rightly refuse my request and reject me. But instead, to Jacob's credit, he chose to come into the open. He chose to step into the open through the vulnerable act of disclosing his name. He says, my name is Jacob. I cheat, I steal, I manipulate, and I'm afraid. All of that was bound up in his name. And there's another transforming lesson, I believe, in this story. Rejection in response to vulnerability is so much less common than shame says. Shame always says that in response to any act of vulnerability, you will be rejected. I got to tell you, that's like so rarely the case. I'm not saying that it never happens, that in some relationships in our lives when we practice vulnerability that there is some kind of disconnection or it makes someone feel awkward and they pull away. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm saying it does not happen nearly as much as what shame says to us, and it never happens with God. Never. Jacob is blessed in response to his vulnerability. He is given a new name. No longer will he be Jacob, the one who cheats as his name meant. Now he will be Israel because he has struggled with God and he has struggled with men and he has prevailed. His vulnerability resulted in a face-to-face experience with the creator, the savior, and the sustainer of the, the universe. And that experience left him objectively changed. He was never the same. And so here is the most important thing that we have to walk away wrestling with today. It's our big idea. If you want to write this down, make a note of this. There is no intimacy apart from vulnerability. It's just not a thing. There is no intimacy apart from vulnerability. That's true of marriage and dating. That is true in friendship. It's true of every expression of relationship we experience, including our relationship with God. So until we are willing to face our fear of rejection and step into the open with God, until we choose to bring our true selves to him, we will always feel distant from him. And not because he isn't near. And not because he doesn't desire us. And not because he's not anxiously awaiting relationship with who we truly are rather than all we pretend to be. It is never God obstructing intimacy. It's our allowance of shame to have the definitive word. And so as we wrap this up this morning, I want you to know that God has not called us to do anything he has not modeled for us. God modeled vulnerability in creation. He made himself accessible. He created us for relationship with him. And he also created humanity with both the will and the ability to wound and reject him. But rather than hide from us, he pursued us. Despite the fact that we do reject him, he does not hide. He pursued 
In fact, he stepped into human history and experienced a life of rejection. Isaiah called Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was abandoned, he was betrayed, he was murdered. He made himself vulnerable. And he did all of that so that you and I could step into the open and experience intimacy with him. And so this is going to demand a deep dive into your own soul. Rather than blocking our emotions, as we've talked about our tendency to do, we have to learn to embrace them. Rather than running from the past, we have to return to it. Rather than project a prettier false self, we have to learn to live as who we truly are. And it is not comfortable, and it is certainly not convenient, but it is familiar territory for Jesus. And so we can walk with him into it. There is no intimacy apart from vulnerability. So let's commit to step into the open today. Will you pray with me? And then we'll do some Q&A. Father, we ask you for the courage to step out and the strength to stay there. Jesus, you know firsthand how hard this is. You know the fear and the anxiety that accompanies it. Your word says in Hebrews 4, you have been tried and tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So you've been tempted to hide, but you didn't. You stepped into and stayed in the open, and you do this with us. And so, Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would begin this work in us of teaching us to live more vulnerable lives with you and with one another. And Jesus, we thank you, thank you, thank you that you were willing to do what you have done. That you were willing to give your life in our place for our sin. That you were willing to endure shame so that we could step out of it. And I pray that you would help us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.